Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and today on the show we're going to do another Best Of edition, which is a selection of some of the best clips from the last 10 episodes. We did this after the first 10 episodes, and it went really well, so we thought we'd make it a recurring show. As a reminder, all of these clips come from longer episodes, so if you want to learn more about a particular topic, check out the full episodes on Wealth of Knowledge from wherever you listen to the show. So let's get started. In this first clip, you'll hear co-president of the Emily Post Etiquette Institute, Daniel Post-Senning, on common workplace etiquette scenarios. All right, now I want to go through a couple of quick hitters here in terms of the office pet peeves. I think this is some of the more fun topics that people like to gossip about or vent about once they get home. And we're going to get some some clarity today can on I, the show. Can I guess ahead of time? The, the kitchen sink... The or the office, the office kitchen, the person who's talking too loud on the phone. Um, yes. Yeah, see, you you have you have my notes in front of you. Let we got to get to the cubicle first and foremost. Personal calls that get too personal at the cubicle. Yes. No. Never. Sometimes. <laughs> Please never. But it's going to happen if it's happening to you. Respecting someone else's privacy. Someone's phone rang. Their kid had just been suspended. Should I say something about it? No. Uh, sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. It's okay to not say something. If you happen to pick up something very personal about a coworker that you shouldn't know, if you're the person who's receiving that call or making that call, reminding yourself that there is a, a public private line that's worth maintaining and asking coworkers to keep your secrets or hold confidence for you puts them in a difficult situation. So no, don't, don't do that. Food. Bringing your hard-boiled eggs to your desk, or should they even uh, in the microwave? Should we even bring these smelly foods into the kitchen microwave at all? What are your thoughts on on food and the volatility that they can provide? Everyone has a different food that they think is smelly. For some people, it's bananas. For some people, it's eggs. And everybody else's smelly foods always surprise the person who's never heard that one before. Um, it's why it's great to keep food that's not really simple snack food in an office kitchen, if at all possible. Um, I would also say that any kind of personal hygiene or grooming should be done in private at your desk so or, or in, in a restroom. So your, your desk is a workplace, and particularly if you're sharing that workspace with others, recognizing that everybody's lines on these things are a little bit different, and then really holding yourself accountable to a a business standard and taking eating to a kitchen or space where it's appropriate and grooming to a restroom, I think will make everyone's lives easier. Now it's late winter, peak flu season. This is another one we have to get out of the way. The etiquette on staying home from work when you're sick. It seems cut and dry. And yet I think it's a challenge for sick workers to stay home. I mean, it's, it's 2019. Working remotely is as easy as it has ever been. Why is this still such a challenge? And maybe how can someone be nudged to maybe stay at home if they are sick? It's so hard to tell someone they're too sick to be there. <laughs> it really is, particularly if it's borderline. And, and, and it's hard to say. Some people think, well, oh, once you're showing the symptoms, you're no longer contagious. It's that period of time before you're showing those symptoms that you're most contagious. This is one where I like to remind people that you some of the best things that you can do are to protect yourself, particularly during, during flu season. Observe those traditional etiquettes. When you're around other people, don't touch your face with your hands. Keep your own 
fingers out of your mouth, nose, eyes, ears. We're back to uh, back to daycare uh, with other people, level. and then wash your hands before you go eat. Not just because it's polite to other people that you show up to the table clean, but because it protects you. You don't know whether someone else washed their hands after they sneezed, whether you saw them do it or not. So take care with yourself. If you need to, it's okay to stand back a little bit from someone who's sick, protect yourself. Calling someone out is trickier. How you ask someone to take better care of themselves or stay home is something you really want to approach with a great deal of caution. If you've got a good relationship, most people would rather hear about something really awkward or difficult from a coworker than from a boss, manager, or HR. So having that discussion privately, discreetly, a great way to prime someone for any difficult discussion is to ask permission. You know, there's something a little awkward I wanted to talk to you about. Do you have a minute? Yeah, sure. What is it? You've now got permission to say almost anything. <laughs> they, they call it priming, and it's a great way to broach a difficult topic or conversation with someone. Ask permission to have it if you're going to go there, and then be direct, be clear. Also be explicit about your care for the person and others. You know, I really care about you. If the shoe were on the other foot, I'd hope someone, you would say this to me I'm a little concerned that you might be contagious or I've noticed you coughing a lot. Are you feeling well? You know, I, I bet we could tackle this and keep you updated via email if anything comes up. That's a, a soft version of that conversation that you might be able to get away with, but approach it with some care. Tax expert Kelly Phillips-Herb offers her advice on the best tax preparation tools. Now, there's so many different tools out there that help you file your taxes. There's the TurboTax, the H&R Blocks, the, the private tax preparers. There's a whole list that we could run through, but I want to ask you a few of sort of different categories and what you think is the best tool for that particular category. Feel free to add categories uh, you know, as we go along here, but what is the best way for people to file if they're looking to do so for free? Well, IRS actually has a great partnership. It's called Free File. If you go to irs.gov, which is the official IRS website, um, you can find free file options. And those are partnerships that the IRS has coordinated. And that allows you to use different software providers like your TurboTax that you mentioned um, and, and, use, and file for free just through the IRS partnership. So I would say if you're looking to file for free, and use software, absolutely check out FreeFile. Um, it's underutilized. In fact, the National Taxpayer Advocate just released its um, annual report. And one of the things she said is, you know, we're, we're not using FreeFile enough. Uh, it, I think the threshold is between 50 and $60,000, depending on who you are. Um, and I believe they think that there's something like 70 or 80% is the number that, that I think it is that uh, of taxpayers that should be eligible to use FreeFile. So a lot of folks should be able to use it and don't. Um, if you want in-person for free, the IRS also offers VITA services, V-I-T-A, um, which is Volunteer Income Tax Assistance. You can find those centers on the IRS website as well. And those are volunteer income tax preparers that help. Um, often it's low-income tax uh, taxpayers, but also seniors and military uh, prepare returns for free. And how about, you may have, you may have covered this one actually now, but how about if you're trying uh, the best way to file when you're looking for the most security uh, of your information, let's say? 
Oh, that's tricky though, right? Because um, <laughs> there's a lot of factors that go into that because you can have a, a wonderful tax software program, for example, and if you're filing from Starbucks on an, you know, <laughs> an insecure um, uh, connection, then your data is not very safe. I mean, <laughs> the best way to file is to not file from your local Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> but you'd be surprised. Um, no, I think that one of the things you want to do is make sure you're using a reputable company, obviously. So whether it is uh, software or whether it's an in-person preparer, again, one of the nice things about the free file, um, if you're looking for the free filing option security, is that IRS has um, certain standards that those folks have to, to live up to. And so for that you know, with, with respect to that, you can be assured on some level that your your data is safe. Um, again, you you want to use just common sense though with respect to um, it, otherwise making sure that your data is safe and use secure connections, good passwords. Uh, don't you know fall for scams when folks are then sending you emails back about your tax uh, your tax software. And how about the best way to file if you're trying to get your refund uh, as quickly as possible? So here's the thing, no, no matter what uh, software folks tell you and tax preparers tell you, there's no specific preparer that can get you your refund faster than anybody else. And if they tell you that they are, then they're lying. Um, but if you e-file, that will speed your refund along. And if you use direct deposit, that will also speed your refund along. So the combination of those two things, um, the IRS says that you should have your refund within 21 days. Anecdotally, most folks have them. If they have an easy situation with no flags, you're, you're looking at like 10 days. Um, so that's pretty fast. If someone tells you that they can get it, you know, same day or um, something like that, you should be a little a little skeptical because again, nobody has a, a, you know, there's no golden key from one preparer to the IRS that the rest, everybody else just doesn't know about. U.S. News President and CEO Bill Holliber interviews Alicia Tillman, Chief Marketing Officer at SAP, on what factors impact 21st century leadership. So Alicia, just to kick it off right away, we're, we're talking about 21st century leadership. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of factors that uh, impact 21st century leadership. And, you know, first you need to sort of understand what those issues are. What is, what's the disruption going on, whether it be, you know, globally, so societal, within companies, uh, what leaders are dealing de workforces, even citizens. Mm -hmm. can, can you talk about a little bit of that, that from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of uh, forces and issues yeah. and opportunities that, that leaders of today are, are focused on. And, you know, you have a lot of your societal challenges, um, things such as how do you create a more diverse and inclusive workforce? How do you have more gender equality? Those are all issues that are very leadership specific in terms of what we need to do to, to create more fair and, and um, growth driven uh, workforces. So that's one. Then you have all of the disruptions in technology that everyone is still trying to figure out. I mean, we talk very openly about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, but knowing the actual application of that in your business and, and what it can change and what value it can bring um, is also what leaders are, are trying to figure out. And then I think somewhat related to that is really the skills and the leadership that is needed of your workforce. How do I ensure that I have the skills to grow my business for the next decade that incorporates a lot of the new technologies that are in the marketplace today? So it's 
people is always going to be a top issue and making sure that you have the right people with the right skills, making sure that you're very purpose-oriented and focused on things that matter to your employees, things such as gender equality, and then how do you embrace, embrace new disruptive technologies to help run your business more effectively. U.S. News Executive Chairman Eric Gertler interviews Nola Weinstein, Global Head of Culture and Experiential Marketing at Twitter, on how leaders are using Twitter to communicate. We know that successful leaders have to communicate very clearly. But what we've also seen over the years is that the leader that understands the new medium often becomes, in many ways, the most successful leader. I think of, you know, FDR as he mastered radio or JFK mastering television. Twitter is the new medium. Um, talk a little bit about how leaders are using Twitter. And I know that you have developed a program to help business executives use Twitter as a form of communication. So how have they been using it and how have they been successful? So Twitter is an extremely powerful communication tool where business leaders are essentially able to give unfiltered access to the world. You know, all of us work at companies where great things are happening daily and there will not always be an article about that or a quote will not always be interpreted as you hope. So Twitter enables you to share your message without barrier directly to the world. You are able to shape the conversation. Um, one of the reasons we hear business leaders are most eager to join the platform is to talk to their employees, to connect. It's whether you have 10 employees or 10,000, it's easy for an employee to feel disconnected from their leadership. Twitter enables employees to know what their business leader stands for. Now more than ever, employees want to work for leaders. Individuals want to buy from leaders who are active on social and sharing where they stand on the issues that matter. Um, business leaders are using it to not only connect with employees, but to connect to customers. And that doesn't mean responding to every tweet they receive. It means listening and learning and understanding feedback on the ground, not just from those who are in their office or in their immediate circles. It's also a way to give um, access to the press, one, instead of sending out a press release or doing 50 interviews around a particular topic, your tweet becomes your statement on a certain matter. A lot of power in that. It's moved, tweets have moved markets, you know, single tweets that have sent stocks up or down. Both from the private sector and the public sector. Yeah, absolutely. And additionally, um, recruiting talent and retaining talent. A tweet shouting out great work or highlighting an incredible team or a particular office means a lot. To people. You know, it's, it's interesting what you say. U.S. News will be unveiling our um, current best countries uh, survey where we rank countries by different, um, uh, different subsections and categories. One of the uh, elements that will be revealed is that consumers and citizens want business leaders to be talking more about social issues and understand how business leaders are connected to, to, to social issues and have a higher degree in trust in many cases in business leaders uh, than they do in leaders in, in, in the public sector. Um, so from your vantage point, I'd love to get a sense of, um, you know, you've got a front row seat to seeing how leaders communicate. What makes for a successful leader today? Yeah, I think authenticity is first and foremost. You can't step into every cause celeb or talk about every issue. It's impossible and doing so would be quite risky. But what are the issues or causes where you can credibly and authentically connect and align? And in the best case, it also aligns with your company's purpose and principles. When do you step in? When do you step up? When are you willing to step forward? And the leaders who I think have gained a lot of trust are the ones who consistently and authentically step up for what matters to them 
to their employee base and also to their customers. So certainly being able to communicate directly has benefits. It also is the flip side and has some, some negatives. Uh, today, there are different challenges than there were 30, 40 years ago. Um, I wonder if you can address from your vantage point, what are some of the challenges that you've seen that leaders now face today? It's a great question. I think there's, of course, countless issues leaders face in their roles and as citizens of the world. Um, particularly on Twitter, I think it's so much more productive to articulate what you stand for instead of what you stand against. When you come out in a combative way or are directly addressing someone who you disagree with, that can cause conflict. Your employees may feel conflicted, your teams may feel conflicted, you yourself might feel conflicted. Whereas if you come forward and say, we stand for diversity, we stand for equality, we support people of all backgrounds, we care about the environment, we're committed to X, instead of what you're opposed to, that will gain more positive sentiment, it resonates far and wide, and even those who don't agree with you will have far more respect for how you've communicated your message. U.S. News Executive Chairman Eric Gertler interviews Steve Paliuka, co-chairman of Bain Capital and co-owner of the Boston Celtics, on how running different types of companies impacts his leadership approach. You're in a unique situation. You're a leader of a private company, but you're also a leader in the community because of your ownership in a community property, the Boston Celtics. Not that it's not privately owned, but it's shared by the whole community. Do you see your role as a leader different in those two aspects, or is it really the same? I think they're more similar than different. Uh, you know, Bank Capital uh, is a partnership, and we have incredible partners. And one thing I love about Bank Capital is from, from, from when partners were very young at Bank Capital, including myself, all of us really earned our livings. We came from modest backgrounds. But from the early days, uh, Josh Beckenstein kind of led the way. Bank Capital partners were giving lots to charity. So we formed Bank Capital Children's Charities, Bank Capital Community Partnership. We've given out, just directly from that, over $50 million to, to different causes in the Boston area. And that's probably multiplied by over 10 by personal donations from the partners. So it's been a strong ethic, uh, not because it's led by me, it led by the whole culture of Bain and Company and Bain Capital because we feel like we have to give back to the community. The Celtics, uh, that's a different story, but, but from the day one where, where we purchased the Celtics, uh, I purchased with the Grosbecks, the Celtics, and a, and a great ownership group, day one we recognized that really that's a community asset. Uh, people, especially in Boston, people live and die by the sports, and yeah. they're certainly living now with the Patriots going to the Super Bowl again for the third time in a row, and we've been very blessed. So it has been a virtuous cycle. And, and our city is fantastic because all the sports owners get along. We do multiple charity efforts together. Uh, the, the, the Patriots and the Red Sox and the Bruins helped put up a Bill Russell statue, which was a mm -hmm. civil rights statue as well as a basketball statue. We've helped all those other uh, organizations with causes. We founded something called the Boston Shamrock Foundation the first day we bought the team, and the whole ownership group put millions of dollars into it. And it's been one of the leading uh, you know, sports for philanthropy franchises because you can use that power of a brand like that to bring kids to, to do better in school. We have programs like Step Up Your Game to get them better in school. We have programs uh, that, that, that work with charities to give people housing, uh, Stop Abuse, MSPCC, uh, the Berkeley School of Music, music scholarships. And that Celtics, they all love the Celtics, and that Celtics is a great draw for them to reach their full potential. And we would think it would be a real waste. And, you know, and our, and our strategy in buying the Celtics was, you know, number one, you know, three prongs. Number one, we had to try to build a championship team, really hard to do. Uh, had a five-year plan to do that. Fortunately, we won a championship in the fifth year. Number two, improve the fan experience. When we bought the club, they didn't really have much in the way of communications or, 
or internet, and a lot of things didn't even exist, Facebook. So we've got a great staff that's put all that together. And then point three was really turbocharged giving back to the community. The first two are really hard to do. The first one is the hardest, but the third one, you can win every year. So right. there's no shortage. And our players now have bought into this. We have the most hours, community hours of, of any franchise. They, they use, since, since it's infectious, if the owners do it, the coaches do it, the players do it, the community loves it. So now they all, they're, they're begging for opportunities to go out in the community. Right. We have to hold them back. Uh, so it's a great situation at the Celtics, and I'm, I'm very proud of what the players have done and, and the ownership group has done. U.S. News President and CEO Bill Holliber interviews Georgian Prime Minister Mamuka Bakhtadze on what he views as the most important leadership qualities. So, Mamuka, being the youngest Prime Minister in the history of, of Georgia is, is quite unique. And we're here to talk about 21st century leadership. And as it relates to your beliefs and your, your traits and what's going on in Georgia, what leadership traits and qualities do you think are really necessary and important to succeed in the 21st century? Well, I think that um, actually the human capital development will be the major focus for any nation in the 21st century. And therefore, I think that for the leadership, it's, uh, for the political leadership, I mean, it's very important to have it as a number one priority. Uh, therefore, kind of investing more in human capital, investing more in education, in healthcare, in sport, is uh, something that should be a priority for any, for any government. Uh, but of course, for many politicians, it's not so easy you know, to, to make such a radical, radical refocusing. Uh, but um, I, I truly believe that the, in the 21st century, the most successful nations will be the nations who are going to try and increase its human capital index as much as possible. In Georgia, we have a huge success. We are number six uh, in the World Bank ranking about doing business. Uh, and that's a very big success. Uh, but uh, at the same time, we started in Georgia a very ambitious education sector reform with an aim to increase our human capital and of course I do believe that after this reform Georgia will be as successful in the human capital index as we are successful in the doing business index. So I, I, I truly believe and once again the World Economic Forum in 2019 showed that more and more uh, political leaders are recognizing the, this as a highest priority in their agenda. Financial advisor Douglas Bonaparte on how millennials should view risk when investing. That leads, I think, very well into this sort of third profile that I've created as you touch on risk is this group of millennials, let's, call, let's use one millennial specifically, who watched their parents lose a lot from the Great Recession. That was right when they were coming out of college and that was the time when they were going to start to earn and start to save. And so fear can be a major factor uh, to investing large percentages of their hard-earned money into the stock market because they saw it impact their parents uh, when they were old enough to sort of know what was happening. How do you reassure those young investors or is your reassurance, let's work with, ca let's work with cash instead? 
Well, you know, that's recency bias, right? This a recency, recency bias tells us that the last kind of traumatic event sets the tone for how things are going to operate into the future. And right. it's, a, it's a bias. It's, it's, it's typically not the case. You know, you can equate that to, you know, if you're single and you just, you just broke up with a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you know, it's the end of the world. You know, it'll, it'll never work out. You'll never find someone. That, and, you know, when you say it like that, it, well, that sounds just, just a little silly. So you have to remember that 2008 created some anchoring, created some recency bias, all these emotional behaviors that typically aren't good for investors who are trying to be disciplined and understand that things work in cycles, that if you participate over the long term and don't, you know, blow yourself up by, by reacting to things, um, you'll, you'll typically participate and be okay. You know, an ongoing joke in our community is, you know, well, well, who, who performs as well as the market or beats, who beats all other investors, it's it's those who don't look at their statements or log into their account, right? They just they just kind of said, "Oh, I didn't know that was there." Oh, wow, look how well it's done. Because again, they didn't they didn't really react to anything. They let them let those markets do what they do. Um, so yeah, it's created stigma. Even myself as a professional, you know, I tend to be more conservative. I'm 34. I, you know, you'd think. I'd be aggressive in, in my investment policies, especially when it comes to other young uh, professionals and older and younger millennials. And the, and the truth is, no, um, I, I, I take it two ways. Number one, I, I think it's you know shown me how, how bad things could be. And maybe there's biases in there that, that I deal with in, in being a little bit more conservative in general. I also know it's going to keep people safe. And, and I'm all for that. I think that's, that's part of my job as a fiduciary. But I also think that it's trained me to, you know, uh, understand where buying opportunities or generational opportunities uh, opportunities lie. You know, the other attitude I'd have is, well, if 08 happened again um, with what I know now, and that's the thing, you can't predict these things. You don't know how they're going to how they're going to flesh out in the end. But I hope young people who, who are prepared and have fundamentals and build cash reserves um, no, no buying opportunity or a generational buying opportunity when they see it. And 2008 was that. Like if I could do it all over again, I'm sure everyone would have, you know, borrowed as much cash as possible, found, you know, hawked, <laughs> hawked their possessions on eBay just to go buy themselves. You know, uh, <laughs> you do well in the S&P 500, let alone specific, you know, companies, whether that was uh, your FANG stocks or otherwise, by the way, not recommendations to go do any of this. It's just, you know, that that would have been a generational buying opportunity. Um, and yeah, you don't want to be that. <laughs> you also don't want to be that that advisor, that person who's like, yo, let's just wait for, you know, the house of cards to fall so we, we can go. But that's that's pure market timing. You can't you can't do that. But I guess my more salient point here is if, if you do lay down a strong financial foundation for yourself, um, you can get yourself through any market-like event, whether it be 2008 or uh, Boxing Day last year in December when we saw uh, ultimately uh, the U.S. market almost, almost become uh, a bear market, and, and it didn't. So I think that that's almost a foolproof way to navigate these things and not have to worry about uh, another 2008. The car coach, Lauren Fix, and Jamie Page Deaton, executive editor for U.S. News Best Cars, identified their best vehicles for specific buyer types. I want to close out with a little selection game uh, for you two. Uh, I've decided to call it Pick Two. Uh, so I'm going to offer a few different car buyer types and I want you each to give quickly two top suggestions for that buyer. Uh, if you have the same answers as, as, as the other guests, that's just fine, but uh, 
try to offer up another car so we can give uh, listeners some options here. So, number one, uh, two cars for a single young professional. I guess I'll start. Uh, Mini Cooper is a blast. Both my kids have the Mini Cooper. My son's got a John Cooper Works. If you want something that includes maintenance, so much fun and you can do so much. And on the other end, if you're thinking, I'm single, young professional, and I want something nice to drive, I would say look at some of the Lexus lineup and some of the Acura lineup. They're really fabulous. You can get into a luxury car at a great value. Yeah, I, I would, I'm seconding the Mini, but I would also throw in the Hyundai Kona. It is a great little SUV. And, you know, if, if you're going and you're a single young professional and you get suddenly get yourself a dog, there's still going to be plenty of space for it. Um, going for also, you know, a Kia Soul. Absolutely love the Kia Soul. Um, not so great on the fuel economy, but if you're in an urban environment where, you know, you're not going to be buffeted by high speed, you know, highway, wi- highway winds a lot of the time, um, the Soul has great outward visibility. It's easy to park. It's affordable. It's full of technology. Um, and it stands out in a crowd. I'm really tired of seeing, although this is a sensible choice, I see like whenever I'm down in DC, I see a lot of, you know, young urban professionals and they're commuting in their Corollas and their Civics. And those are great cars, but also expand your options list a little bit. Look at Hyundai, look at Kia. Right. I agree with that. I'll definitely Hyundai, Hyundai and Honda and Kia, and they make great product. And if you're going to buy a car, you can't go wrong with a 10 year, hundred thousand mile warranty, especially if you're a new professional, you're right out of college, first job, and you're going to buy the car because you don't know if you're going to drive a lot or where, whether you'll get moved to another location. Always look for something with a long warranty. How about two cars for a small family? Oh, wow. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm really a fan of the Ford Explorer. I mean, I've had many of them over the years. It's a good size SUV. You can put all that kid stuff in the back, the strollers and the playpen and all the... Oh, gosh, I'm so glad I'm done with all that. Taking off... <laughs> My kids are in their 20s. But, but I remember all that stuff. And the Explorer, I, I must have bought four of them over the years, and I was leasing them. So I have to say it's always been a steadfast, great choice. Uh, and then going on the other end... I think you want maybe something that's a little larger if you've got kids and you're planning to expand your family. I'm not a minivan person, but a larger SUV. Uh, the Kia Sorento has been great because you've got a family and something reliable with a good long warranty, three rows. Uh, and again, there's so many cars in that three-row SUV category. It's something to consider. Um, you know, looking at smaller cars and you got to bring all that kid stuff with you, you really have to think twice and not forget what you're using your vehicle for. Yeah, I would have to go with it's 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 an obvious choice, but the Honda CRV. There's a reason they sell so many of them. These are good, long term, very useful, very practical um, small SUVs. Um, but then also like the X, the Volvo XC60. If you want to take care of yourself um, a little bit and kind of treat yourself after you drop the kids off and you just want a nice, comfortable commute, XC60. Um, has some great, um, you know, tech features. It's got very strong performance. You can go, it, there's a ton of powertrain options to choose from, and it's just a gorgeous car to look at. It's beautiful without being kind of ostentatious. Um, and so it's kind of understated luxury in the design. So it's kind of, it's, it's, it's just a nice choice that um, it has a really serene interior as well. And I also just love the infotainment system. How about two cars now for the larger family and a dog, at least one dog? <laughs> Well, now you're talking about big vehicles. If I had, I had a larger family and a dog, and I said, I really just want the lap of luxury, Lincoln Navigator. Oh, my gosh. It was Truck of the Year last year for North American Truck of the Year. But I have to say, when you get in that thing and you see the screen and all the technology and the safety and just 
everything you need, especially if you're gonna go camping and you got a lot of kids or you're gonna go on a long road trip, you'll be very grateful that you have that. Uh, Lexus also makes a very large SUV. Again, you're talking about dollars and cents here. There's a lot of great choices in the large family category, but I, I think your best bet is to look at an SUV so you have a ton of flexibility because when you have older kids that get into that middle school, you're probably hauling around their friends too. Yeah, Lauren stole mine because the Navigator is amazing. <laughs> like, it is such a such a good SUV. If you want to spend a little bit less, the Ford Expedition is a great option. I'm also really excited about the Lincoln Aviator that's coming out later this year. It's more yeah, of a too. it's more of a crossover, so it's a little bit easier to drive than the Navigator because if you're in kind of a more urban area, um, that one's going to be a little bit tough. It, I gotta say, like. They they get a lot of flack. Minivans make life really easy. They're automotive sweatpants. You can just kind of throw them on and go. And like when you have little kids, they can get in and out by themselves. Um, when you have older kids, there's plenty of room for them. And yeah, you don't look cool, but just you know, be secure enough in yourself to just you know not care what other people think. And then when your kids are gone, go buy yourself a Porsche. Um, and yes. just put up, yeah, put up with the minivan for a couple of years, you know, while you've got the family and the dog. And the other nice thing about the minivan, too, is if you've got a big dog, um, when your dog gets old, it'll be easy for the dog to get in and out of. Um, I had a Chevy Tahoe and a 120-pound Rottweiler that could no longer jump into it, and that was a problem. So I kind of wish we had a minivan then. Um, but, yeah, just suck it up. Get a minivan. They're great. <laughs> so you, you alluded to the Porsche a little bit. So now two cars. For the middle-aged professional, they're able to pay those luxury prices, and the kids are no longer at home. What do you got? Any Porsche. Oh. <laughs> yeah, 911 GT3 RS and uh, maybe a Jaguar F-Type SVR. No, I, I've got expensive taste. But, uh, and, of course, if you really got deep pockets, go for the Ford GT. Yeah. I mean, I, I would still go for, I love the Porsche Boxster. It's a, you know less expensive than the 911, although you get on these Porsche odor boards and everybody who buys a Boxster immediately wishes they bought a 911, but it's a mid-engine car. It's perfectly balanced. Um, and, you know, it's the least expensive kind of Porsche sports car you can get. Um, I've also, I really like the Miata. I think it's a good little sports car. You can still fit some golf bags in it um, for just two people. And it allows you, you know, if you're kind of a middle-aged professional, you know, maybe if you're retiring soon, you don't want to blow all your money on a Porsche. Um, so just going and just going for a little bit less expensive with the Miata, you'll still have tons of fun. And what I really like about the Miata is um, it's just as much fun at 40 miles an hour as other cars are at 90 miles an hour. Um, so if you live in a congested area, you could still have a really good time with the Miata. I'm a big fan of the Mustang GT also. If you think I don't really have those deep pockets that Lauren's talking about, and you're thinking, I just, you know, I got like $40,000 and I just want something fun. Drive the new Mustang GT. They have done a fabulous job where they've picked up the technology and still give you that real performance and if you're still a three pedal person like i am and it sounds like jamie is too i love manual transmissions maybe not for kids running around but when you're looking at something fun to drive the mustang gt gives you a lot of money a lot of value thanks for listening to wealth of knowledge please subscribe to our podcast rate it comment on it and if you have financial advice questions you'd like answered on future shows please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. We'll review your emails, and we'll try to answer a few on an upcoming episode. Finally, if you'd like to read up on financial advice, check out money.usnews.com, where we have a wide range of information on personal finance, careers, real estate, investing, and more. For Wealth of Knowledge, I'm Antonio Barbera. See you next week.